Dear brethren and friends, I invite you to accompany me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Thus says the word of the living God. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? To say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power or authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, C.S. Lewis said, if Jesus' statements are false, Christianity is of no importance. If true, it is of infinite importance. And one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Well, the claim of Jesus to be the divine Messiah is singularly the most important claim ever made by anybody, anywhere. And the reason for that is because this claim is thoroughly validated and attested, and therefore, it's true. Mark is writing to show how the actions of Jesus point to his identity as the Son of God. And now as we move forward into the second chapter, we should pay attention to how Mark organizes his material. Because the material that's included in this gospel account is highly selective. Drawing from Peter, Mark no doubt had a whole lot to say about the Lord Jesus. Mark chose very carefully what to include and exclude in this gospel account, and what is included is purposefully arranged to present us with a picture of the Lord Jesus, kind of like a beautiful mosaic. 
in which we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Have you ever seen one of those pictures where if you look at it up close, uh, it looks like many different little pictures, and each one's a little picture in and of itself, but if you step back and you look at it from afar, it makes up one grand image, like the face of some man. Well, that's what the Gospel of Mark is like. He gives us many little snapshots of the Lord Jesus Christ in action as he's doing miracles, as he's healing the sick, as he's cleansing lepers, as he's casting out demons, as he's speaking with unparalleled wisdom. There's all these little stories, all these little snapshots each of which portrays different aspects about him in detail. But as you step back and look at the whole narrative of the Gospel of Mark, and you understand as well how that narrative plugs in to the grand narrative and storyline of the Bible, then what you realize is that it's all meant to portray Jesus, the Lord Jesus, as the servant of Yahweh, as Isaiah called him. Mark is drawing a lot from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And it's meant to portray the grand image of Christ, the suffering son of God, hanging on the cross for our sins. Each mini-story is masterfully placed within the story of the larger narrative, which crescendos in the cross and resurrection. The whole gospel is building up to that climax at the end. And so every little story has a cruciform shape to it and contributes to our understanding of what the Lord did for us on the cross. Mark is much different from Paul in this case. Both were inspired of the Holy Spirit both are writing the very word of God, but Paul likes to give us straightforward doctrine in didactic form. Mark, however, is a master storyteller, and he specializes in theological biography. Mark is giving us doctrine and theology and truths, just like Paul, but unlike Paul, he's not giving them in straightforward propositional form. He's giving us, rather, pictures. And each picture, as the saying goes, is worth a thousand words. And in this case, 10,000 words. Mark is showing us how the story of Jesus intersects with the story of the people of God from the beginning of time. How it brings that story to its climax and gives it closure. He's giving us the story of Jesus to, to, to confront us with the reality of the Son of God so that our personal life story would be impacted and shaped into the cruciform contours of the story of Messiah. And so he organizes all these little mini-stories about the life of Christ in the light of this concern. The material isn't organized according to strict chronology. Rather, by the inspiration of the Spirit, 
It is redacted or arranged into its present literary form to serve the purpose of telling this grand story and communicating very specific and important things about the Lord Jesus. And because of that, it's important to take notice of his structure, his structure. We should ask ourselves, as we're reading this gospel account, what is the relationship between this snapshot in this mini-story and the surrounding stories and the flow of the narrative of the book as a whole? How does it fit in? How does it complement them? What does it communicate as it's understood in coalescence and harmony with them? And as we ask these questions, we need to take note that there are striking features about this book that are not true of any non-inspired literature. The latter half of chapter 1 lays a lot of emphasis on the authority of the Lord Jesus. And every mini-story comes to its full only in the light of his death and resurrection. In verses 16 to 20 of chapter 1, you'll recall, he called four fishermen to follow him. And the story shows that there was an uncommon appeal and glorious magnetism about the person of Christ. His call resonated with such supreme authority in their hearts that they left all immediately and followed him, yielding to him an allegiance that is properly given only to God. They were called to be fishers of men, of course, and they would catch men in gospel nets by proclaiming the story of his death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. And then going into Capernaum as he taught in the synagogue, verse 22 of chapter 1 tells us that they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Well, here Jesus demonstrated his authority in the realm of truth. His teaching, in fact, not only accords with the truth, but is the absolute standard of truth itself, which holds us all accountable and demands that every single one of us reckon with it. And according to the gospel narrative, the reason we can be sure that his teaching, that his doctrine has absolute divine authority is because God set his seal of approval on everything Jesus taught by raising him from the dead. Well, in the same synagogue, he cast out a demon showing his authority not only over the realm of truth, but the supernatural realm as well. You'll recall that we said that no prophet had ever done that before. Here is more than a prophet. He is the word made flesh bearing such authority that even the demons submit to him. Well, that mini-story also climaxes in his death and resurrection, for it's by his death that he defeated the powers of evil, and by his resurrection, he inaugurated a kingdom, the realm of which is free from demonic presence and influence. And so it's pointing forward to the cross and resurrection. And then Mark shows us that Jesus has authority over disease, over the effects of the curse. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed multitudes in Capernaum. And then he cleansed a leper. And that is also meant to point us to his death and resurrection. 
As Isaiah said, by his stripes, that is his suffering and atoning death, we are healed. And by his resurrection, we receive the pledge and promise for our own resurrection and are guaranteed a bodily state that will be free from all disease and suffering. At the end of chapter 1, Mark weaves all this together with the story of the leper who traded places with Jesus as the leper is sent into the city of God and Jesus, we are told in verse 45, remains outside in deserted places. The story of Jesus' baptism and temptation in verses 9 to 13 introduced us to the concept of vicarious substitution and the story of the leper was a literary capstone of that initial subsection of the Gospel of Mark that illustrated that concept, vicarious substitution, Jesus taking the place of sinners under the curse. And it did so so vividly as Jesus himself ended up back in the wilderness. And so sandwiching the stories about Jesus' authority, all of which point us ultimately to his death and resurrection, is the concept of vicarious substitution, which gets at the very heart and central significance of what he did on the cross. Well, now in Mark chapter 2, we enter a new subsection of the narrative. And this section spans from chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. 2-1 to 3-12. Mark presents us in this section with five mini-stories about Jesus. Each one of these mini-stories in this section is characterized by a confrontation with the religious authorities who stand in opposition to Jesus. Mark is implying that these religious folk were under satanic influence. That was already hinted at in chapter 1 when we read of the story of Jesus in the synagogue where Mark contrasts Jesus not only with the demon that cried out, but also with the scribes because he taught not as the scribes. He taught with authority unlike them. The implication which was hinted at there was that the scribes and the demons both stand in opposition to Jesus and therefore in alliance with one another. Now in chapter 2, that alliance of evil becomes even more pronounced and in each story it intensifies. The current subsection that we are in will climax initially in the mini-story, beginning in chapter 3, and in verse 6, we are told that the Pharisees plotted to murder him, after which the story transitions to a scene where Jesus names the 12 apostles to carry out his legacy after his death. And so this section from 2.1 to 3.12 captures the opposition of the religious leaders to Jesus by framing the narrative around five questions and five answers given by the Lord. There's five stories, there's five questions, there's five answers. The first four questions are posed by the scribes themselves. You'll recall that we said the scribes were the scholars and theologians of Israel. 
Not all the Pharisees were scribes. There were scribes of the of uh, there were Pharisees that were not scribes. There were scribes that were Pharisees. There were scribes that were Sadducees. There were scribes that were Herodians. There were scribes that were Essenes. Each religious group, major religious group in this day, had their own scholars. But the majority of the scribes who opposed the Lord Jesus were the scribes of the Pharisees. They were the scholars. They were esteemed as the experts of the law. And in this day and age, the only ones who would receive that appellation rabbi, which literally means great one, were scribes. And so Jesus is even esteemed in his own day as a scribe, a theologian, as everybody calls him, rabbi. Well, these scribes, though, they're opposing the Lord Jesus in this section. The first four questions are posed by the scribes. And in the last question, Jesus himself goes on the offensive and he poses the question to them. Here's the first four questions. Chapter 2, verse 7, which, by the way, in the Greek, uh, the, the Greek word can be translated why in every case but it's usually not translated that way in the, in the English. But here's how it goes in the English. Chapter 2, verse 7, first question. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Then chapter 2, verse 16. How is it that he eats, or why does he eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Chapter 2, verse 18, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Chapter 2, verse 24, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? It's curious, you can even go forward into the Gospel of Mark, and in the majority of the many stories that he presents for this whole major first section of his narrative, each one centralizes on a question that poses a complication or a dilemma. Well, those four questions are then followed by the fifth question in chapter th 3, verse 4, where Jesus finally fed up with these scribes and Pharisees goes on the offensive as he takes the initiative and he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And they had no answer to his question. Well, each question frames the narrative around the conundrum that the question itself raises. And each answer is a remarkable revelation of how unique the Lord Jesus is. Different from us, set apart from the rabbis, greater than the prophets, and altogether wonderful as the sufficient Savior for sinners. And each mini-story is framed as a little narrative unto itself. Each one has a number of elements. Consider, each mini-story has a setting, a protagonist, which is always Jesus, antagonists, which are the religious leaders and the demons, sometimes both, sometimes one or the other, also onlookers, there's onlookers, usually the disciples and the crowds, and then there's a dilemma that produces suspense, and then there's a solution to the dilemma that reveals some grand glorious truth about the Lord Jesus. And so as you're reading Mark's gospel, pay attention to that. You'll find these six features 
in almost every mini story. Setting, protagonist, antagonists, onlookers, dilemma, and solution. As an aside, the modern movie industry, by the way, has based its stories off of the flow and structure of the biblical narratives. If you study the history of movie making and script writing, they frame their stories around these precise elements, these six elements. George Lucas, for instance, the writer of the Star Wars novels that were later put to film, admitted that he got his inspiration for the elements of his narrative from the biblical narrative itself. Have you ever wondered, for instance, why the good guy always wins? They're borrowing capital from the Bible, from the worldview and, and, and unique, superb features of the Bible itself. It's the only literary production from antiquity that has narratives so thoroughly and clearly, distinctively structured like this. It's the greatest story that's ever told. But the difference between those stories and the biblical story, of course, is that those stories are fictional and this is nonfiction. That's why it's always puzzled me how people can become fanatics of those novels or those films and not find the Bible to be far more interesting. When I try to read fiction, I get frustrated with it real quick because I feel like I'm wasting my time and dealing with something far inferior to what we're given in the Word of God. The Word of God is far more interesting, far more gripping, far more edifying, far more transformative than all those stories that really in one way or another are just spin-offs of it. And so here's what's going on. Mark is introducing us to Messiah. And the question he is answering is, again, who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And rather than, handling that, rather than handing that question over to us on a platter, all cooked up and all neat and worked out, Instead, he gives us that answer in a more inductive way by relating what Jesus did. It's as if Mark is taking us and, and bringing us in to the historical, chronological unfolding of the events of the narrative so that we can be introduced to Christ and we can come to this gradual realization of the greatness of who he is and the fullness of who he is as we're reading through the gospel account and, and getting to know him. Just like the disciples got to know him. And so Mark is confident that as we hear what Jesus did, the Holy Spirit will give us discernment and insight to come to the right conclusion about him for ourselves. The actions of Christ reveal the identity of Christ. And so now let's probe our text as we keep this in mind. First of all, note how it describes the Lord Jesus. He sees faith. He sees faith. Mark 2.1 says that again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. He was outside in deserted places for a while. He was itinerating, we know, from the other gospel accounts all around the shore of the Lake of Galilee and all throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, performing miracles, and then he came back to, our text says, the house. 
which, by the way, in the Greek, is a Greek idiom that literally means he came back home. He came back home. This was Peter's house, which had become the temporary home of the Lord Jesus. And that house could fit inside about up to 50 people. The rest were spilling out into the streets as they gathered around. And so verses 2 to 5 say that immediately many gathered together, so there was no longer room to receive them, not even at the door. So they're pressing up against the door, and they're spilling out into the streets, and they're all gathering around the house of Peter, and Jesus is inside the house teaching. He's preaching the word, it says. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And then when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus, note these words, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, these men didn't have to take a sledgehammer or a jackhammer to the roof of the house to get in. The common two-story house in Capernaum had a flat roof that was accessible by an external staircase or ladder. Fitzmaier explains that the roof would have been made of wooden beams placed across stone walls. The beams were covered with reeds, matted layers of thorns, and then topped over with several inches of clay. And it's actually interesting. You, you can look up uh, images of this on the internet, and you can see reconstructions of first century homes that are built just like this. And so the four men, with some effort, peeled away the layers of the roof to open up a large hole. Of course, it was a dangerous act. Of course, one of them, if not the paralytic himself, could have fallen into the hole to their demise. But this poor man was desperate. And thankfully, he had a band of loyal friends. What's striking is that Mark says, when Jesus saw their faith. Now note this. He sees faith just as clearly as we might see some physical tangible object that's not just prophetic insight that's divine insight faith is a substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen hebrews 11:1. 1. faith transcends our physical reality to lay hold on transcendent spiritual eternal reality but faith itself is invisible well, Jesus' perception also pierces through the physicality and tangibility of things. You see, he is perfectly in tune with transcendent realities in the spiritual realm which are invisible to the eye of mere man. His oneness with the Father means that he is just in tune with their faith toward God as the Father himself was. Only God can see into people's hearts like this. This is the first indication in our text that the Lord Jesus Christ can see perfectly what's in everybody's heart. And then the second indication follows where he can read the thoughts of the scribes who were opposing him. 
There's many texts in the Old Testament that stress that God alone is the searcher of the hearts of men. God alone knows the secrets of the heart. You'll recall when Samuel was involved in the calling of David to kingship, that he was astonished that the Lord would choose this this little young man, David. But remember what the Lord said to him. Man looks on the external appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's what Christ was doing in our text. 1 Kings 8.39, Solomon prays and says to God, You alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So put yourself there in the midst of the scene. Jesus sees that the man has faith. Is that really the conclusion we would have come to? Of course it's not. Of course not. We would have been jolted by the reckless destruction of property and the rude interruption. Peter himself was probably fretting about his roof. Onlookers probably thought that the actions of these four men were rather quite ridiculous. But Jesus cares more about the man than he does about the roof. He subordinates the importance of things to the priceless value of people made in God's image. His worldview is evidently far from that of materialism. He's looking past temporal things, past things of only moderate importance, like the roof, to the things that are of ultimate value, like the glory of God and the salvation of the souls of men. Notice that what it was about the man that elicited from Jesus this favorable response. It was faith. Jesus seeing their faith. It doesn't say seeing their works. It doesn't say that it was merely the man's misery. It doesn't say that it was the flamboyant activity of the four friends who were carrying him. Rather, it was faith. Faith. It was through faith that this man received the forgiveness of sins. Faith alone is the instrument of pardon and justification. Paul said in Romans 3.28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Some scholars try to tell us that Paul made up the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Roman Catholics to this day say Martin Luther made it up. But here we see it taught clearly in Mark's gospel, taught conspicuously by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That paralytic contributed absolutely nothing to his justification or his healing. All he did was lay there, all miserable and pathetic. There's no record of him saying anything special. He certainly didn't do anything except be carried there by others and laid down at the holy feet of Christ. All he did was come to Jesus and lay down before him, all helpless. God's grace comes to us when we realize that we are helpless and hopeless in ourselves apart from Christ, and we simply come to the Lord Jesus in faith. The text puts in parallel 
the man's forgiveness and his healing. He did as much to contribute to the one as he did to the other, which was nothing at all except to receive it. He was healed because of the Lord's graciousness alone, and he was forgiven through grace alone. The Lord Jesus still works today according to that same dynamic. Just as in the previous story, as we saw in the case of the leper, so in this story, we have the paralytic laying at the feet of Jesus. We are that leper. We are this paralytic. And it's when we recognize our plight in sin and our need for the mercy of Christ that we come to truly experience his grace and healing touch. And so now let's home in on what the Lord tells this man and note that in the second place, he forgives sins. He sees faith and he forgives sins. Look again at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Well, the paralytic was brought to him for healing, but Jesus gives him something far better. He gives him forgiveness, salvation, eternal life. Multitudes were coming to Jesus for healing, and they were walking away without forgiveness. But this man comes for healing, and he receives both. Just as the Lord's perception of the man's faith was divine, so his extension of forgiveness to him points indisputably to his deity and his divine authority. The scribes knew their theology. They knew their stuff. They were right when they said, who can forgive sins except God alone? They understood that Jesus was claiming to be God by forgiving this man's sins. That's why John 10.33 says, The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's what they were so outraged over. But of course he was a man, but he was also God incarnate. Only God can forgive sins and justify the ungodly. Romans 4.5, that's what it says. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. When the Lord showed his glory to Moses, it appeared before him. He proclaimed, listen to this, the Lord, which by the way, this is the most often quoted and alluded to text in the entire Bible, this revelation of Yahweh to Moses. This is what he declared, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, and note this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That belongs to the peculiar, unique, distinctive glory of God to forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. Psalm 103, verses 2 to 3 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, just like we sang in the hymn. It says, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities and heals all your diseases. The Lord Jesus did both in our text. 
He forgave him and healed him. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. It's a prerogative of God. Therefore, reverence and holy fear and worship is owing solely to God. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Daniel 9, in verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. And when Daniel says that that belongs to him, what he means is it doesn't belong to anybody else. And so the only conclusion we can come to here is that either the Lord Jesus is a part of the Godhead or else he's an imposter and a false prophet and a blasphemer. There is no middle ground. But he proves he's a part of the Godhead. Prophets would sometimes assure people that the Lord had forgiven their sins, but the prophet themselves would never appeal to their own authority to do that. They would always indicate that it's the Lord who forgave them. Hence, when Nathan assures David of God's pardon after he sinned with Bathsheba, he says to him, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But Jesus doesn't say God forgives your sins. He doesn't say the Lord or Yahweh forgives your sins. He says, I Forgive your sins, that you may know that I have authority to forgive sin. He's placing himself on par with the Father. And note that Jesus verbally expresses his assurance of pardon to this man. He verbally communicates pardon. He didn't have to do that. Goes without saying that most people that are forgiven by God never get a direct word from God that they have, in fact, been forgiven. But he did. He gave him a direct word, and that for at least three reasons. First of all, as I already indicated, to point to his deity, his divine authority. Second, it was to provoke the ire of the scribes intentionally. He, was, he, he did this in accordance with the will of the Father. He purposefully instigated them to stir up their hatred for them. And yes, he knew that he was be, to, to be delivered over to them, to be handed over, to be crucified. And so this declaration was a public gesture that was calculated to produce outrage and to orchestrate and lead up to the circumstances that would lead to his murder and death. He went like a lamb to the slaughter, willingly, boldly, daringly, out of love for us. He knew what he was doing. But third, the third reason he says this, and we can't ignore this one except at our peril. It was to assure and reassure this man, this poor, suffering, miserable man of divine forgiveness toward him for the man's own sake, for the man's own soul. With forgiveness came the verbal declaration consisting in the assurance of pardon. That's what we call it, the assurance of pardon. 
This was for the sake of comforting the man's poor, troubled soul, for bolstering his faith, and for flooding his heart with the joy of sweet assurance. Well, as we worship on the Lord's Day, one of the most important elements of our worship when we are assembled together is known as the assurance of pardon, following the example of the Lord Jesus. You may have noticed that in our uh, pastoral congregational prayer, I always include confession of sin followed by some assurance of pardon taken from some divine word in the scriptures. This is God's word to us. The assurance of pardon in the church is God's word to us, just like what Jesus said in Peter's house was God's word to this paralytic. It's meant to be just as personal, just as authoritative, just as reassuring, as long as we believe it and lay hold on God's word with faith. And so yes, he doesn't give a, yes, he doesn't say our name personally and say your sins are forgiven. But the scripture comes to us in a personal way to be appropriated personally through faith. Well, finally, I should point out that the story we have before us brings up a rather sensitive issue, and that's this. What's the relationship between sin and suffering, sin and sickness? Well, I should say two things about this. First of all, there can be a relationship between them. There can be. 1 Corinthians 11.30 addresses people who are profaning the Lord's table. And Paul says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And so God can and does use sickness to lay his people low, to humble them, and to chastise them. But the second thing we need to say about that is that there often is no direct correlation, so far as we can tell. It's for other reasons beyond our knowledge many times when we suffer infirmity and sickness and trial. In John chapter 9, we read that as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know, many Christians today still have that kind of mentality. If somebody's sick, if somebody's suffering, it must be because God's punishing them for some sin. The disciples were committing a logical fallacy called the law of the excluded middle. They're presenting the question as if there's only two possible options when really there's a third option. And so Jesus answered and said, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. In other words, he was born blind so that Jesus could magnify his majesty and his grace in healing the man from his blindness. Job wasn't suffering because of some sin. Rather, in an indirect way, it was on account of his extraordinary piety, so remarkable that it provoked the angst of the devil himself. Suffering happens under the sovereignty of God, 
and we can, no long, we can no more figure out the precise reason for our suffering oftentimes than we can wrap our arms around omniscience. But we do know that in this case, Mark chapter 2, that it's probably just like the blind man in John's gospel. This man was suffering so that God's glory could be displayed in his healing and the record and testimony of it could be recorded in the scriptures for the benefit and the faith and the edification of the people of God throughout the centuries. You know, sometimes a question is brought up. Why does the Lord allow some people to remain in sin and misery for so long, for so many years, before he intervenes to save them? Why does he allow them to run in the course of sin, to traverse great distances in the path of rebellion? Couldn't he make better use of us if he would save us all earlier in life from a young age? And that way he could evoke from us an entire life of devoted service to him rather than just the service of our latter years. Why does he grant 11th hour conversions? Why does he grant deathbed repentance? Well, I think he does so for the same reason that he allowed this man to remain paralyzed for however long he did or the man that was blind from birth to remain blind all those years years in order to magnify his mercy more remarkably in our deliverance. That's why. He can change the hearts of aged, hardened, obstinate sinners who are set in their habits and set in their ways just as he could reverse the course of this man's paralysis even though it was so bad that not naturally speaking, it was permanent. You may have been in a bad condition, dear friend, for a great many years. You may think that salvation and full assurance is impossible. You may think that your sinful habits and ways could never possibly change. But the Lord Jesus Christ is saying through this text that he still has the power to deliver you. He still has the power to transform you. If only you will come to him in the way of faith. And so he sees faith. He forgives sins. And he self-authenticates. Notice he self-authenticates. Let's read verses 6 to 11 again. Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately... When Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power, Greek word exousia, that's, that's authority, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. And so the question is, what was, in fact, easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Which was easier? Well, from the theological perspective, the former is much harder to say. 
because it's a greater divine fiat for a person's sins to be forgiven than it is for one to experience a healing in their body. The wonder of wonders, the miracle of miracles, is that God in his graciousness has freely blotted out all our sins and eternally pardoned us for Christ's sake. No doubt that's the greater of the two. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. What he means is that, of course, it's easier from the perspective of men to make the claim to forgive somebody's sins because, well, that's an invisible reality. They can't verify or deny that such has actually occurred because it's invisible to the eye. False prophets would tell people that their sins were forgiven all the time when the people's sins weren't. But no false prophet could heal a paralytic. No false prophet was the giver and the author of life that had the capability to yield within the palms of his hands the power of life itself and to infuse life into this guy's paralyzed body. Jesus did creative miracles. And so from the perspective of human observation, it's much harder to tell the paralytic to get up and walk because the authority of that command could immediately be verified or proven to be false. Now notice who Jesus does and doesn't appeal to in order to verify that his words are true. He doesn't appeal to the rabbinic authorities, as was the custom of the scribes, as we saw before. He doesn't even appeal to the Father in this case. You'll notice that Jesus never swears an oath before God. David did. He swore a whole lot. You read First and Second Samuel, David is swearing oaths all the time to God. Paul swore oaths to God. He says, I call God to witness to the Corinthians. He's making an oath, a solemn oath. Jesus doesn't do that. That's what mere men do to settle disputes. That's still done even today at our post-Christian culture. In courtrooms, and government offices, a hand is laid on the Bible and people swear to tell the truth or to uphold their office as they appeal to the witness and authority of God. But it's striking how in the Gospels, the sayings of Jesus never include oaths. Instead, he frequently makes this curious assertion. Truly, truly, I say to you. And that's a mighty contrast with the prophets, by the way, who would always preface their oracles with, thus says the Lord. Jesus never says, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. He appeals to his own authority. And then he demonstrates that that authority is divine. In other words, he self-authenticates. He proves himself to be true. There's no higher authority to appeal to. You'll remember the book of the Hebrews that when the author there is speaking about how God made the Abrahamic covenant, that he could find no one greater than himself to swear by, and so he swore by himself. It's kind of the same thing that's happening here. Jesus is appealing to himself. If he weren't God in the flesh, this would have been blasphemy. 
But they knew his words were true because his miracles attested to the veracity of those words. But what about us? How do we know that Christianity is true? How do we know that there is pardon and peace and life for us in the gospel? Well, it's not wrong to ask these questions because if we don't provide a meaningful answer to them, our faith can only be blind. And blind faith isn't true faith. Well, classical apologetics and the great Christian and Reformed tradition holds that Christianity is true based on the authority of God himself. Not on the authority of human reason, not on the authority of church consuls, and much less on the authority of blind faith, which is no authority of all, but on the authority of God. I was watching the news recently, and the talking head was dichotomizing faith from reason when talking about religion, and particularly Christianity. She said that some things just have to be accepted by faith, even though they make no sense. And she said, faith begins where reason ends. Please don't ever say that. It's not true. That's called blind faith, and blind faith, again, is false faith. True faith is based on objective, authoritative truth. It's based on objective truth. And we have that truth in the words and deeds of the Lord Jesus and in the words of the apostles and prophets recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. Remember how when Jesus taught in the synagogue that there was a divine authority about his teaching? It came with its own intrinsic weight and power. The people discerned that his word had this divine attribute about it. Well, the word of Christ in the scriptures, the word of God, also reflects divine attributes which authenticate its divine authority. The majesty of its style, its historical accuracy, its internal coherence, its self-complementing consistency, its uncommon power to change and transform people, its commanding power over the consciences of men, its prophetic infallibility both in predicting future things and in typifying Christ from the very beginning of its record. All those things are divine fingerprints that attest its divine veracity and authority. To quote C.S. Lewis again, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Everything else. The scripture floods us with light, and that light is self-attesting and self-spirit authenticated. John Owen said that the scripture evidences itself to be the word of God as the sun manifests itself by light and fire does by heat, or as the first principles of reason are evident in themselves without need for further proof or testimony, end quote. Well, that's what Psalm 119.30 says, where he declares, the entrance of your words gives light. 
It gives knowledge, true knowledge, knowledge characterized by utter veracity and divine authority, knowledge whereby we see, knowledge whereby we know, knowledge whereby we are convinced, certain knowledge. The entrance of your words gives light. As Jesus said in John 7, 17, if anyone wills to do the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine or the teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak merely of my own authority. Further, the historical miracles of Jesus prove the authority of his doctrine. That's what he was saying in our text. His miracles abundantly attested to in history verify the authority of his doctrine. You know, even the secular historians, Roman secular, unbelieving, non-Christian historians uh, dating back to the first and second centuries spoke of the miracles of this man of Nazareth. They were so overwhelmingly, abundantly testified to. It was a supernatural phenomena that was not questioned. His miracles testified to his doctrine. And every single miracle he did was pointing forward to something. You'll recall what I said that was in a previous sermon. Every single miracle is pointing forward to his resurrection. His resurrection. Because his resurrection from death to life, never to die again, that's the ultimate miracle. And so it's what Jesus calls the sign of the prophet Jonah. No sign will be given to this adulterous and wicked generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, later to burst back out. Hence Paul says in Acts 17.31, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He says he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. That's our assurance. That's our confidence. Well, that word translated, he has given assurance to all. It's literally the Greek word pistis, which is the New Testament ordinary word for faith. Faith. Back in classical Greek, that word was used by Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus to speak of a proof or pledge, a token offered as a guarantee of something, something that is verified through a proof or pledge of which we can be absolutely confident and sure. That's how they use it. And Paul is saying that the resurrection of Christ And Acts 17 is the visible, tangible token and proof that his teaching has divine authority. His resurrection, further, is abundantly testified to by indisputable historical proofs. And so when Luke writes his gospel narrative, he says that he wrote it in chapter 1, verse 4, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed, the certainty. Thus the scriptures are sufficient for a reasonable faith. The scriptures are sufficient that we may know. Remember when the rich man was in hell and Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom 
And the rich man pleaded with Abraham, saying, I beg you, Father Abraham, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. We have the scriptures. See, if they won't heed the scriptures, absolutely nothing will persuade them because there is no higher authority. There is no greater proof. And in our text, they had Jesus. They had the scriptures and they had Jesus incarnate. God incarnate in their midst, performing the works of God, exercising the prerogatives of God, speaking the words of God, yet they still didn't believe. See, the problem is not the lack of attestation. The problem isn't a lack of evidence or proof. The problem is the wickedness of the human heart. And it can only be overcome by the special grace and power of the Holy Spirit of God who renews our fallen minds and testifies in our hearts by sealing the truth to our conscience with power. There's no higher authority than that of the triune God. And when any member of the Trinity speaks, it's God himself speaking in his fullness with all authority. Whether it's the Father speaking from heaven in the baptism of the Jordan, whether it's the Son speaking in Capernaum in the house of Peter, or whether it's the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart as you hear the word of God preached in church or you're reading the word of God in your living room, it's God himself speaking. And he assures you, dear brothers and sisters, that as you have believed in the Son of Man, so your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. So as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper, know, brother and sister, that the Lord speaks peace to you by bequeathing this sacrament as his gift to you. Every time you partake of it, it is the Lord speaking to you through the sign, just like he spoke to this paralytic, saying to you, your sins are forgiven. Father, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your word. And Lord, how your grace does overwhelm us. Lord, we pray that you would prepare us, Father, for partaking of this sacrament as we now sing your praises, Lord, and contemplate this holy ordinance and sacrament for Christ's sake. In his name we do ask. Amen. <laughs>